Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today I speak with Kate Boyce on common red flags to look out for in wellness culture. Kate is a board-certified patient advocate and endometriosis patient herself. She's the co-founder of the Instagram and webpage Endogirls blog, which provides accurate information to people with endometriosis. We're doing this episode because many people regret having spent thousands of dollars on naturopathy, on coaches, on functional medicine, and other aspects of wellness and alternative medicine culture that didn't help them. And they regret that they could have instead spent that money or saved up for different treatment, such as an excision surgery, counseling with a registered dietitian, pelvic floor therapy, SIBO treatment with a gastroenterologist, or other types of doctors and treatments. Both Kate and I have had those same regrets, and that's why I want to talk about this today. I also want to mention that it's really important to me to take responsibility for the information that I put out on this podcast. So I'd like to recognize and apologize for the fact that in a few episodes of my podcast, mainly the ones about gut health and hormones, I spoke very enthusiastically about functional medicine and naturopathy and my own personal experience without having the background awareness that there is really a general lack of evidence-based medicine among these two practices. There's also typically a reliance on unnecessary and even useless tests, as well as selling unregulated supplements and hormones. Not only may these practices be useless or expensive, but they can also delay true diagnosis or treatment and even cause the patient harm. So I did go back and I added some learning moments to those episodes, and I also wrote up some articles on my website, which I've linked in the show notes today. So please check them out and enjoy my conversation with Kate. So today, Kate and I are here to talk about wellness culture. And I think like many people worldwide, you know, most of us are looking for ways to support ourselves with endometriosis to have optimal health, both mentally and physically. And so we really want to distinguish here the difference between like wellness and looking for ways to support ourselves with our health and wellness culture and wellness industry, which is what we're going to talk about today. Wellness industry is this trillion dollar industry that is often dominated by influencers and celebrities who are unqualified to give any kind of health advice. And there are so many ridiculous claims that, you know, XYZ product or XYZ routine or habit is going to make us quote unquote healthy. Um, when really there's no evidence behind that, these are not evidence based practices. 
And a lot of times they're going to do nothing more than line the pockets of the person who is selling this product or this protocol. I think a lot of us have seen that wellness culture is really predatory. Wellness culture is seeped in privilege. It is seeped in healthism and ableism. There are so many health hacks, quote unquote hacks and quick fixes. And, you know, we see things from like utter quackery to unqualified coaches selling consults like for $400, $900 for just 50 minutes to give you basic health advice to other things we see, cultural appropriation, whitewashing of indigenous health practices for, for profit. So there are a lot of problems with wellness culture and wellness industry. And that's part of the reason why we want to make this episode today. Thank you, Amy. I absolutely agree. We see it, especially, you know, in the chronic illness community where people are just so desperate to find relief from their symptoms because they feel that they've been failed by conventional medicine. And so they begin to look outside the box. And, you know, when you go online and you're immediately looking around, you're going to, you're going to see those influencers first, right? It's not like you're going to find the, you know, the peer reviewed journal articles popping up first when you look it up on Google, you know, you're going to come across these influencers um, and often, you know, grifters that are really just out there to make the money. What's interesting is that they will base a lot of what they have to say on like, you know, um, anti-conventional medicine or anti-pharma, but at the same time, or they'll say big pharma, but at the same time, they are actually becoming big wellness. Oh, isn't that the truth? <laughs> And I also think, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, yes, there are people out there who are definitely just like trying to make a profit. But what I think there are even more of is people out there who are actually trying to help others. They're like trying to do the right thing, but they're not following the right people. They're not following the experts. They're not understanding scientific information or scientific studies. And so and so they're giving information that they think is sound information. That will help others, but in reality is not evidence-based or, you know, is not scientifically sound. Yeah, absolutely. And I think both of us may even be guilty of doing this ourselves, right? Like we get excited, we get into this new field and we're like, oh, we found something that may have helped us. And we get just so excited about it that, you know, we almost like preach it, right? And then as we become more educated and we become more like level-headed, and learn how to better navigate the space, we then recognize that we were not actually including any of the nuance. And that is where this all becomes so critical because yes, all of us are going to be different and we're going to find different treatment modalities that help us. But like I think both of us have done in the past where we kind of just presented it as fact or something that'll be effective for everyone. Now we're realizing that's not the case. And we're able to apply that nuance and that, you know, I always tell people you want to look for individuals sharing information with nuance, because that means that they've learned that it's much more complicated than they originally thought. It's not black and white. It's not cut and dry. Um, and they're not just at that point, you can realize that we're not just trying to like profit off of what may have helped us. Um, and that's the difference between, I think, you know, reliable information um, and individuals who are really just you know, taking advantage of a community or profiting off of it. They just, they really do lack the ability to recognize that nuance. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make this episode today, especially with you, Kate, because I know you have 
done a lot of research for a long time into the different sides and the different practices and different tests. And you have a lot of knowledge there. You know, I definitely know having my podcast for the last four years, I've mentioned previously that I went through and I listened to the episodes that I did in the first like couple years of my podcast, two, three, four years ago. And um, one of the major things that I noticed is the lack of nuance around some of these topics. And so that's why I really wanted to do this episode today is because I did go back to a lot of these episodes and add more nuance, especially when I spoke about naturopathy or like gut health, stool samples, Dutch test, because those are all things that three, four years ago that I did and that I talked about in a couple of episodes of my podcast, but I really did not have the information that I have now. And so I really wanted to make sure that the, you know, listeners of my podcast and who have been with me for a long time, and of course, new listeners joining us today, really have a more nuanced aspect to the the information that we're going to present today. Because, you know, I think this is just so important to know, because the wellness industry is a trillion dollar industry. And a lot of this information, a lot of these practices or tests or protocols, they're not cheap. Right. And so there are many people who regret having spent hundreds or thousands of dollars on a natural path or, you know, certain tests that we're going to talk about in the episode today um, when they could have been saving and spending that money on excision surgery or a registered dietitian or treatment for your digestive system with an actual gastroenterologist or other kinds of doctors or treatment. And so I think it's really important that if we are looking to, well, with anything we know, even with endometriosis treatment, with any treatment or protocols that we're looking to do in order to make that informed consent and those informed decisions, we really need to see all sides. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the benefits? What are the doubts? What are the criticisms? And so, yeah, that's really why we're here today. This is something I'm super passionate about because I will get DMs from so many people telling me that they have tried absolutely everything. They're not feeling any better. They'll tell me how much money they have spent. And then they will often send me the accounts that they have been following. And when I go and I, you know, I look through these accounts and they may not even be like a big time influencer, but they are still individuals that either have a following or they do have a relatively successful business or business model going for, you know, healing endometriosis or treating endometriosis patients. And the first thing I like to do is dig into their qualifications, right? So I, I like to go through and see, okay, is this person even speaking within, you know, their scope of understanding? And what I've found is that they don't. There are a couple actual registered dietitians who will discuss diet and endometriosis symptoms, but it's very nuanced. And so I know that that information is probably more sound, but when I have yet to have somebody send me those accounts, when they're telling me that they have, you know, been following a specific account and their suggestions or their programs. And it's because those are not sensationalized. People are going to be drawn toward this sensationalized post, you know, healing endometriosis naturally, how I did it, or, you know, posts that will give a sensational quote that they've pulled from a 
publication and it'll say something like people with endometriosis have 10 times more toxins in their blood than people without, you know? And so then it's into follow my program and I'll help you detox those toxins. You know, it's just such a, it's just such a sensationalized claim that they're utilizing to essentially take advantage of endometriosis patients. And, you know, like we had said earlier, maybe they're not completely, you know, just evil. Maybe they do have a bit of where they might actually believe some of this. And that's where it becomes, you know, either cultural or their location. Um, A lot of this I see stemming out of countries where surgery is even more inaccessible than it is in in the United States. So those individuals are more likely to, you know, grasp on to other options for managing their endometriosis. But, you know, some of the biggest red flags I see are, you know, a post that says research says, right, and then goes on to say whatever they're going to say that's a sensationalized claim. And the reason that this is super problematic is because I've yet to see any of these individuals really have any formal training in reading research um, or understanding the methodology that was done in these publications. So they're not choosing quality information. Um, And I always say, you know, not all publications are equal anyway. We have to look at the methodology. And when I dig into the methodology of these quotes from these papers, they're always super, super flawed in a variety of ways. Or they'll say something like, must read news study shows. You know, that's another one that's just sensationalized. And I'll read through it. And I'm like, it's not even providing any kind of sound information. It's always just work done in a Petri dish, maybe done in a mouse. And I'm sure, you know, we've discussed the issues with that before. Or they'll have a post that says, my program helps you address the root cause of endometriosis. We don't even know what causes endometriosis. And if we did, um, it wouldn't just be a secret amongst these specialized endometriosis coaches. And then another one, you know, follow these steps to detox your endometriosis. You know, that's that's not a thing. You might be able to follow some steps that help you and your symptoms, but you're not going to like, you can't just like detox the lesions, you know? So ultimately, when I look at these red flags, I see, you know, they're twisting research findings to sell a program. They rely on research that's done in basically just Petri dishes or mice to, quote, prove their claims. And then ultimately, it's just taking advantage of the entire community. So it's interesting that about, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, a long time ago now, before I was diagnosed with endo, before um, like I had my podcast and my platform, I actually signed up for a um, course to become certified to become a health coach because, you know, I could see that like diet and lifestyle changes and habits like really helped me with my symptoms. They didn't make me symptom free by far but they definitely improved my quality of life enough that I could like go back to work and um, just have a better quality of life. And so I actually signed up for a program to learn how to be a health coach, thinking it'd be really exciting. I would change my career. You know, I would like work for myself on my own schedule, et cetera. But I got like halfway through the course and, and I don't think it's a bad course, honestly, the one that I signed up for, but I got about halfway through the course and I was just like, um, I don't know that this, it's just, there was not enough like sound scientific information. And there was like a really big focus on 
selling my story. And so they had these webinars that you could participate in every week, these like live webinars, and you could ask questions. And so I remember at like one of the webinars when I was like halfway through, like I had a lot of doubts and I was at the webinar asking like, so I don't understand, like I'm just supposed to charge people to tell, like to guide them how to eat, even though I'm not a registered dietitian and people are going to pay me for that. And that just doesn't seem right to me. And then I remember like on the webinar, people writing in the chat, like, oh, this, this girl like sounds like she lacks confidence. And I was like, no, people, trust me, I do not lack confidence. But it, it was just like, yeah, uh, it was just interesting, like having, so I actually abandoned the course and I never followed through on, you know, becoming a health coach. But, and I'm not saying that all of the coaching is bad in the endo space or like in the health space, but I certainly think that it's going to be really, really important what qualifications, like actual qualifications do the coaches have and like what are they actually selling because there's a difference between someone being your accountability partner and you check in with them three times a week when, you know, you're like, I have this habit that I want to put into place and, you know, I want to, I want to exercise more. I want to eat more fruits and vegetables. And like you meet with this person two, three times a week on the phone or like you text and you talk about ways that you can make that happen in your life, like buy more canned vegetables or like, oh, here's some recipes. There's a there's a difference between that and a coach, quote unquote coach with no qualifications telling you that you can detox your lesions, that you can heal your endometriosis. And you know, what really bothers me in this space is that when you call out some of these coaches that are like, oh, you can heal your endo and you're like, well, how do you heal endo if it has no cure? And they get around these semantics by saying like, yeah, well, I acknowledge that endo has no cure, but the way that I think of healing is different than like conventional ways of thinking of healing. And I'm like, I just, that doesn't make sense. You know, just because we become symptom free, potentially not all people First of all, become symptom free by making any kind of diet and lifestyle habits. I think that's actually probably more rare that a person becomes symptom free than that they, you know, do. But even if you become asymptomatic, it doesn't mean that you're healed. You still have this disease. The only difference is that you don't have symptoms right now. No, I'm really glad that you had the ability to, you know, discern what was going to be accurate information and what was actually going to be, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, morally right. You know, you knew you had the ability to discern that. So when it comes to endometriosis coaches, okay, there's no such thing as an expert coach in endometriosis. That's not an actual accredited thing. We see a lot of people who are working outside of their scope of practice. And so that's what I was saying before is like, it's one thing to have, you know, a member of the community that you choose to pay to be your accountability partner and to give you recipes and check in with you and like ask you how your week went or like, you know, some of the common things in coaching is like, what are your goals? And like, you know, why do you want to eat more vegetables or like, why do you want to move more and they help you to achieve those goals, which I think is reasonable. Like, I think you know, we can help each other to do things like move more or um, eat more vegetables because that's not falling under giving some kind of like specific health or nutrition advice, um, you know, which we're not qualified to do. And so I think like that is different than like working outside of your scope of practice. And that's what we see even with like 
practitioners in this space is we see we see chiropractors who do like a weekend course in gut health or hormones and all of a sudden they're experts, right? Like all of a sudden they're just like experts in hormone health. And it's like, you're not a hormone doctor. You, <laughs> you like did a, I don't know, 10 or 20 hour like video online course sometimes, which is even sponsored by like different companies that have hormone tests or like um, you know, stool sample testing. So they like give education so that quote unquote education so that you can, as a practitioner, like give the test and then make recommendations, on, quote unquote recommendations on the test. And so I think this is a really big problem is, you know, when people are working outside of their scope of practice, and like you said, they may not even realize it, they may realize it, and they're, you know, they're trying to make money, or they may not even realize it, because they're like lacking that critical thought and the nuance and the ability to read the research and all the things that we've talked about. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not like anti-coach, right? I work with so many patients as an advocate who genuinely benefit from working with a coach, as in like you were saying, an accountability partner or somebody that has the, you know, the experience or proper training and helping individuals through traumatic events, or they understand how to do that. Um, that's obvious. That's outside my scope of practice as an advocate. That's not what I do. And so I don't even try to pretend I try to match people with somebody who I think can really help them. Or I look at somebody who, you know, is an actual registered dietitian, right? Somebody who does have the knowledge and they focus on the nutrition part. And I think that's where, you know, the real finding of a multidisciplinary team and a real holistic, you know, way of treating endometriosis comes into play where it's not just one person promising to be able to do all of it. You know, it's finding the right people who can make up that team for you. I'm hard on these coaches that claim there's something they're not um, and people who are making these grand promises because I know that that's not how it works. Um, and I know that they are working outside of their scope. But I also like to recognize that, you know, working with a coach or, you know, working with a registered dietitian can all be incredibly helpful um, parts of managing endometriosis, especially after you've, if you've been able to access surgery, you know, it's an, it's a crucial part of healing after surgery. But um, I think it's a good, this is a good segue into, you know, We've stated the red flags, the problems, um, but we recognize that there is a role for coaching and, you know, addressing dietary issues. But then, you know, it's also important to look through what are the tests that some people are presenting um, and, you know, are they validated and how to approach it? You know, we have, you know, a list of questions to ask your surgeon, but I think it's just as important to have, you know, these list of questions for anybody else that you're going to have on your healthcare team. Yeah. And I think to your point about having a multidisciplinary team, I think it's likely better to find an actual expert in the different areas that you want to address. So now we're going to branch into talking about naturopaths and functional medicine doctors. I actually saw a functional medicine doctor and I also saw a naturopath, but it was not for endometriosis. It was after my excision surgery, about a year after my excision. And um, it was for the symptoms that I was having of the mass activation syndrome. At the time, these 
the two doctors that I saw individually, they helped me a lot. So there are a lot of red flags within naturopathy and functional medicine, which we're going to talk about. I had a positive experience with my naturopath, um, but my positive experience does not negate that a good majority of these practices and a good majority of these doctors are not working from evidence-based medicine, and they are operating outside of the scope of their practice. Um, But something I want to say, Kate, with what you said about the multidisciplinary team is that even though I had a positive experience with my naturopath and she was able to identify issues that I was having with my hormones, she was able to get me on progesterone. They were able to identify that I likely had SIBO and um, we did a treat and see approach and it really, really helped me out. Nowadays, if I am looking to do something with my hormones, I'm actually not going to go back to see my naturopath. I would much rather see an expert in hormones. And the same like with the SIBO, if I, you know, go back to having big problems with my gut health or like mass activation syndrome, I do want to just directly see a gastroenterologist or a doctor who like actually specializes in intestinal health covered by my insurance. So I think it's just really important to bring up when you're thinking about working with a naturopath or functional medicine doctor, a coach, it's like, what am I actually looking to do? Because if I'm actually looking to get like, if I think I have a problem with my hormones, and I think I might need hormone replacement therapy, maybe it's just better to go see an endocrinologist or to go see a gynecologist that specializes in like if we're in menopause that specializes in menopause. If you know, I'm having trouble, I think I might have SIBO. Okay, should I go directly see a gastroenterologist? I want help with changing my diet um, to see like what my trigger foods are. Is it better to, to actually just pay to see a registered dietitian? Because what you were saying, like there are these one kind of like, quote unquote, one stop shops when it comes to naturopathy or functional medicine, and they may be very helpful, but they may also just have a lot of generalist knowledge and not be able to give us the actual expertise, aside from the fact that most of these are just not covered by insurance, the tests that they do are not covered by insurance, and we can probably get more expert care at a much cheaper price point if we just work with conventional medicine doctors who are experts in these fields. Yeah, I like how you pointed out, you know, it was helpful for you where you were at the time, but going forward with the knowledge you have now, you would approach it differently. And I kind of, you know, I also, I saw a naturopathic doctor right after my initial diagnosis. And, you know, I feel like part of the reason you and I are passionate about sharing this is so that maybe people don't waste the same amount of time or resources. And so, you know, I just, I always encourage everybody to do what they, you know, wish to do. But I also like people to understand, you know, that this is expensive and I don't want them to feel hopeless or helpless if they can't afford it. And so, you know, I, I make it, you make sure, you know, it's not absolutely necessary. This isn't your only way out. Um, and like you said, there are conventional doctors out there that can help and they're not all created equal, right? Some of them are just awful. <laughs> and I think that's why so many of us get turned off. Um, I got fortunate in finding a wonderful internal medicine physician that helped me the most, but he was open-minded, you know, and it was um, definitely a partnership in making a way for me to feel better. I do want to point out that there is also a very significant difference between a licensed naturopathic doctor and somebody who just calls themselves a naturopath. 
And that is something that is incredibly important. So the naturopathic doctor that I worked with was actually through the hospital that I had my surgery at. She's one of only a few in the Midwest that's actually formally hired on by a legitimate hospital. And so the difference is, you know, there are specific colleges around the country where you can get your naturopathic doctor education. And when I went back to college, I actually, this was actually my goal. I wanted to attend the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine in Arizona. Eventually, you know, as I I was in school a little bit longer, I realized that it wasn't aligning with necessarily everything I believed in. So I decided not to go that route. But some of the, you know, key differences here is that a licensed naturopathic doctor is actually a primary care physician. And they are trained to diagnose, prevent, and treat acute and chronic illnesses, where just a naturopath, they can serve as a health consultant or a wellness coach, but they're not technically supposed to be diagnosing or treating. Um, A licensed naturopathic doctor is required to have over 4,100 hours of instruction. A naturopath is just, you can get a certificate online. Um, The licensed naturopathic doctors actually are graduating from a four-year in residence doctoral degree program that is accredited by the United States Department of Education. Whereas for naturopaths, there is no standard curriculum and none of those schools are accredited. And additionally, the licensed naturopathic doctors need 1,200 hours of supervised hands on clinical training, where there is no standardized on site clinical training for a naturopath. And again, licensed naturopathic doctors like the one I saw, they can work in private or group practice, integrative oncology care, hospitals, medical schools, and some government organizations, whereas naturopaths are not eligible to write the national board exam or obtain a license to practice in the United States. So this is where it's important that you really dig into the qualifications of the doctor that you're going to see. And again, you know, these licensed naturopathic doctors can and definitely do have a role, especially I've noticed in um, managing, you know, some long-term chronic conditions. But, you know, again, you'd want to do that with somebody who's either out of your primary care physician office or working through a hospital and not just, you know, not just some naturopath um, that anybody can claim they are with their own building, you know, and make it look legitimate. And the same goes with functional medicine. Um, it's actually not even as regulated as the naturopathic doctor program. And for a long time, the continuing education courses for functional medicine were not even approved for proper medical continuing education that recently has changed slightly, but the requirements are still quite intense. Um, But again, you'll want to make sure that the person that has done functional medicine training, you know, maybe they were um, an internal medicine doctor for decades before. So they have that, you know, traditional conventional knowledge as well. These are, you know, this is where we get into that nuanced part. So, you know, leading into this, I wanted to describe those differences. And I think those are important, especially for how they go about maybe the testing and treating that they do. You know, I had a very similar experience to you, Kate, where the naturopath that I saw is actually a licensed primary care physician in Washington state. Um, I will say that different states do have different regulations for the scope of practices for like licensed naturopaths. So in some states, the naturopaths are able to practice more broadly. In other states, they're able to practice a lot less. So I think it also can depend on um, the licensing in each state that you're in. But I do know that, you know, I was seeing a functional medicine doctor first. 
um, who I had found through, he had a podcast and I just, I liked his information. He was just like speaking about different symptoms that I was having, like with my gut and stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go see him. Um, but he was, he was just a chiropractor. So I'm pretty sure he was just working completely out of his scope of practice. I did not look into any kind of what are his qualifications? What are his certifications? He, you know, I just, I had thought at the time it was like, oh, this is like medicine, right? Like functional medicine, just it's another kind of doctor. And I was completely unaware that functional medicine just really is not the rigorous evidence-based medicine that we believe it to be. And as we were working together, I just like little things here and there just seemed off. So I didn't know what red flags to look for, but I just, like he was very reliant on the test that he used. I didn't think he was really listening to what I was saying. Like he was saying like, oh, your stool sample says this. And I'm like, yeah, but my symptoms say this other thing, right? So I think we should listen to my symptoms and like treat with my symptoms. Um, he also had his own brand of supplements, which we will get to in a minute, um, talking about supplements. But he was kind of just throwing supplements at me. At one point, I was taking like 20 pills a day from five different supplement lines that he sold in his store. Supplements from my gut, from my hormones, from my adrenals. I forget what else. And also he sold his own progesterone drops, which is a massive red flag that I didn't realize until later. So I was buying his custom compounded progesterone at ridiculous prices when, in fact, there's an FDA-regulated oral micronized progesterone in double the dose for literally a fraction of the price that I was paying for his janky hormones. I will say, ironically, he helped me. Um, you know, I saw him when my symptoms were the worst of my life when I had that while still having this, you know, weird dysautonomia and histamine and like mast cell problems. Um, and when I saw him, they were completely unmanageable. I literally had no clue what to do. I was so, so overwhelmed. And some of what he did reduced my symptoms. But what I know now is that I didn't need the super expensive tests that he ordered. And I could have taken government regulated hormones from the start. And I could have seen an actual expert for hormones and an actual expert for gut health. You know, I feel like he was just shooting in the dark and it was basically trial and error with him. And like, you know, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And some of it stuck, you know, again, he, he helped me and I'm really grateful for that. But I also realize now that I wasted a few thousand dollars on unnecessary treatments and it delayed me from getting the actual expert help that I needed as quickly as I needed it. It took me a while to realize that he had a lot of red flags because I was just, I was so desperate with my symptoms. They were so, so overwhelming and I was in crisis mode for months. And so I just kind of ignored, you know, without meaning to, but like subconsciously, I think I just ignored some of his fishy behavior because I just really wanted to believe that he knew what he was doing and that he would help me. He just really had a lot of red flags. And once I changed to the naturopath, it was just like a whole different experience, you know? And I think her working as a primary care physician, there was just so many ways that she knew how to save me money, how to use conventional tests, like 
she would say like, okay, I can't give, I can't prescribe these to you because you're in a different state than me, but you can go to your primary care physician. You can say you're working with me, a naturopath, a primary care physician, another state, and you can ask them for this test. You can ask them for this blood test. You can ask them to, you know, explain to them what we're doing, ask them to prescribe you progesterone. And that was really great because what she basically did was she helped me navigate my health situations but then she directed me how to get the care that I needed within the conventional medical system. Um, so like I loved her and I, I had a really, really, really great experience, but all naturopaths are not created equal. And there certainly are so many naturopaths and functional medicine doctors who are using so many tests that are not evidence-based, who are just doing detoxes and cleanses and all kinds of, you know, supplementation that um, selling from their own supplement line. And it's just really important to have these nuances and know these and recognize red flags. Because I think Kate and I here, you know, our goal is not to discourage anyone from seeking the care that they would like or to put every single natural path or coach or functional medicine doctor in the same basket. But just to say that there are probably more who are non-evidence-based than the ones who are. And so it can be really life-changing to be with a doctor who listens to you, who knows how to help you. Um, but I think we know that, especially with dealing like with endometriosis, that it's actually just really hard to find a doctor who actually knows what the heck they're doing. Um, and that can cause more harm than help. So I want to say, if you are thinking about working with a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor, then it's just really important to trust your gut right? Like trust your gut if something doesn't feel right and have a healthy level of skepticism. Don't be afraid to ask your doctor what evidence there is for these different testing methods. How evidence-based is this? Um, you can also tell them things like, let me look into it or let's pause this right now so I can do some independent research. If you think something is too expensive or not evidence-based, don't be afraid to say no. And if the doctor, you know, doesn't respect that you don't want to do something or that you don't think it's necessary, then I think that is a sign that like if this doctor is like pushing and pushing you, then I think this is really a sign that they're not there to work with you, right? They're not there to work with you as a team member. And they could just be trying to make a profit off of the test that they do. Because for some of these doctors, they, you know, make a percentage 20, 30, 40% off of different tests or different supplements that they quote unquote prescribe to you. I think the two most popular tests that we see are like you said, the Dutch test and then the GI map test. We were chatting earlier about how a couple of the stool analysis tests are actually like not even on the market anymore. They've been in trouble <laughs> with the federal government for some shady practices. So I think um, it's important that we at least address the Dutch test and the GI mapping strengths limitations. Anyone who knows me knows that, you know, I had a hysterectomy and I did lose an ovary. So I have been through it with the hormone journey. And what this is one of the reasons I'm super passionate about educating about the Dutch test, because you know, I almost spent $1,000 on a naturopathic doctor in Arizona that was going to help me determine what was going on with my hormones. Unfortunately, I was able to find an actual 
gynecologist who happened to have an interest in menopause, um, who was able to help me, you know, get the proper care that I needed. And fortunately, all I needed was blood work. Yeah, so I'm really glad we're going to talk about the Dutch test and the GI map because ironically, I those are the two things that I did with the functional medicine doctor. And those are two of the things that I talked about in like a couple of previous episodes. And I did go back and update the information on these, but I also wanted to talk about them today for those who, you know, already heard those episodes and won't be going back. Um yeah, so I did do the Dutch test and I think it was $400. Part of the reason why I think these doctors do the Dutch test is because they don't have access to blood tests, right? That is, in my opinion, like part of the reason why, because when I went to the naturopath, so I was first to the functional medicine doctor. And then, as I said, I changed the naturopath because the functional medicine doctor had exhibited all this kind of red flag behavior that, like I said, I didn't know they were red flags, but I was like, something's not right here. And I changed. And when I went and changed to the naturopath, she also was like, oh, yeah, I mean, if you did the Dutch test, we can look at it. But I usually do blood test. The North American Menopause Society says in their position statement that salivary and urine hormone testing to determine hormone dosing are unreliable and not recommended. And so just to clarify, the Dutch test is a urine test. And the NAMS Menono on Bioidentical Hormone Therapy which is NAMS being the North American Menopause Society. So their note on bioidentical hormone therapy says, quote, it's not necessary to check blood, urine, or saliva hormone levels to find the right HRT dose. During reproductive life, estrogen levels vary throughout the menstrual cycle and during each day. There's no perfect hormone level for any person, end quote. You know, so what I know now is that usually HRT treatments are based on your symptoms because treatment is prescribed to improve perimenopause or menopause symptoms and not to aim for a certain level on blood tests. You know, and while some doctors may do an initial blood test to see your levels, um, this way, like after a few months, if you're on hormone replacement therapy, it doesn't seem like you're responding to it. They may check your levels again to gauge if you're absorbing the hormones or if you need to change the dose or change the delivery method. But, but many doctors prescribe hormone replacement therapy and treat solely on symptoms and don't do any blood tests. So I think it's really important to know that. And it's important to know that there are criticisms of the Dutch test, that it's unnecessary, and that even that the info is clinically meaningless for guiding hormone replacement therapy. Um, because as we said, much of the info can be gathered from blood tests with the endocrinologist or gynecologist for a fraction of the price. And then the HRT treatments are guided typically based on your symptoms, not on your hormone levels. And I didn't know this, and I unnecessarily paid all that money for a test that I didn't even need. And that was really infuriating to find out later. My functional medicine doctor raved about the Dutch test, that it was more sensitive and it was better than blood tests because it looks at a more comprehensive picture of your hormone metabolites. And ironically, my hormone metabolites seemingly showed that I had slow estrogen clearance and poor methylation. But like he didn't even include anything about that in the treatments that we did. And I'm not saying that, you know, I want that, but it's just funny that he raved like, oh, these tests are more sensitive. And then it's like, 
I don't even feel like he used a quote unquote more sensitive test to better guide my treatments. You know, all he did was put me on his custom compounded progesterone sold in his store. And putting people on progesterone during perimenopause is pretty common. So we didn't need a $400 test to determine that. And at the time I was happy because I thought the Dutch test, you know, guided his decision. And so, and then he, I got on progesterone and progesterone started helping me relieve my symptoms. So like at the beginning, I was really thrilled with what we did until I learned more later and was like, none of that was even necessary. And honestly, what has made me actually happy and actually thrilled, like now with the knowledge that I have is that two years later, so actually just a month ago, I saw an actual menopause specialist who recognized my continuing symptoms that I'm having as likely being due to perimenopause. And she helped me get on testosterone cream, um, which seems to be working well for me. And all of that was done at a fraction of the price guided by my symptoms because the menopause specialist actually had specialized knowledge of hormones and like actually knew how to best treat me instead of just like throwing everything at me and hoping that like something would work. Yeah, I think thank you for elaborating on that. You know, there are other quote more conventional ways of going about it and a resource that maybe not a lot of people are familiar with is the um North American menopause society they have a registry of different healthcare providers that can help you navigate you know the specific type of hormone issues that we face not even necessarily if you've in menopause or if you've even had a you know a hysterectomy a lot of the hormone issues that we're facing are not traditional so we can't always you know get the the help or information necessary from you know maybe an endocrinologist or even an OBGYN. So I'm glad that this North American Menopause Society exists. And again, unfortunately, they're not all going to be the same. So you do kind of have to go through just to find, you know, who's going to be the most helpful for you and who's going to listen to you. You know, I, according to my symptoms after I lost an ovary, I just assumed I was, you know, going into menopause and the traditional, you know, my sister did the Dutch test and uh, saliva test and they were always pushing progesterone down her throat. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't think that's it. And, um, cause her symptoms were never improving. And when I finally made it to my doctor, he, he tested, you know, a variety of hormones. Um, and of course we all know that testing for your estrogen is kind of not ever going to be accurate because it does vary so much. And you need to do like an estradiol and a total estrogen and then, you know, see where you're at. But that doesn't necessarily indicate much of anything unless it shows zero. But what shocked me was that he actually tested my testosterone. So that's not, I hear a lot of people complaining that their doctors tell them it's not necessary to test that in women and that it's not something that we should focus on. But for me, it was really important. And I'm glad to have found a provider that did take that seriously. Um, but no, you know, that is something testosterone can be reliably checked by blood work. There's only a couple labs I trust to do it because for in the female sex, because our lower our levels can be lower, you do need a more precise um, test done. So you want to make sure that, you know, usually Quest Labs is really good about it. 
And they can do free testosterone. They can look at total testosterone. And that's really basically all you need for that. And it's not necessarily important to get into the nitty gritty of looking at all the metabolites. I know that in the wellness culture, that's a big one because then they can promote specific detoxes because they'll say, well, this metabolite is the bad metabolite. So you're not detoxing properly. So we need to put you on this regimen. And ultimately, that's not it's what we look at and call overtreating. It's not necessarily the actual issue that you're face, like that you're actually dealing with. And they they oversimplify the detox process in the human body by a lot. So, and you know what? I don't know if everybody here knows what Dutch stands for. So the Dutch test stands for dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. Um, and the lab that developed it is often under a lot of controversy as well. So it's important to make sure that you look into the labs themselves. Yeah, I put a really great review from Abby Langer in the show notes today. So it's a review on the Dutch test that you can read if you're thinking about doing it. Um, I think it's really important when looking at reviews to look at unbiased reviews because there is a lot of reviews, like especially on the Dutch test or some of these like wellness um, industry tests that they're just reviewed by the companies themselves or they're just reviewed by the doctors who use them who could be making a profit every time that they prescribe the tests to their patients, or like we said earlier, who could just be regurgitating information that was passed to them by uh, the people that trained them or by the company themselves. So it's super important to look at unbiased reviews. Let's talk about stool samples. Yes, let's talk about stool samples. I think my biggest beef with these stool samples is that I'm seeing a lot of these like endometriosis health coaches administering them, charging a ton of money for them, and then trying to clinically diagnose some issues. And then after that, you know, tell them which programs or supplements they need to take, right? So they're just like using it in this like very narrow way of thinking which is actually not the intention of something like the GI map test. So I did the GI map uh, with the functional medicine doctor, and I had talked about that in the episode that we did on gut health. And I will say that the gut health episodes are the two that I had to go back and do the most updating to because they lack the most nuance and they even had some incorrect information in them. And I apologize for that. Um, That is why we're here today. So. You know, I think it's really important to know that a stool sample is just a snapshot of the bacteria that is in your stool. And this may not be reflective of the bacteria that is in your actual microbiome. And so that science is just not there yet. And so there are different stool samples, you know, that are claiming like, oh, like this stool test will tell you what's in your microbiome. But That science is not there yet. Like all we can see from your stool test is the bacteria in your stool. You know, there are different stool tests out there. They have different pros and cons. They have different um, methods to look at your bacteria in your stool and they have different reliability and accuracy. So I think it's really important to, if you're working with a doctor who wants to look at your stool sample, again, why? (laughs) So why are we looking at our stool sample? Like, what are we hoping to get out of it? What are your symptoms? Are you even having symptoms that have to do with like 
digestion or things that could potentially, you know, be coming from a GI tract. And then, yeah, just really looking into what are the claims being made about the tests that you're going to do and like what can the tests actually do. And the other thing is that all of us have a different microbiome. No two people on earth have the same microbiome. Our microbiome is different depending on where we live, our genetics, like our mode of birth, what we're eating. And so science really just doesn't know what is a quote unquote healthy microbiome. There's multiple types of quote unquote healthy microbiomes throughout the world. So it's not like we can just take a stool test and be like, oh, like this is healthy and this is not healthy. I recently just, you know, was digging through some podcasts on this and I always like to get, you know, down to the science behind these tests. And so I actually looked into the lab that designed this test. They're the Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. What's interesting is that I designed the GI map. Yep. Dual sample. Okay. Yep. So I was listening to a podcast with actually the CEO and the chief medical officer. And so it was really enlightening. Um, and it was definitely, they explained the test a lot differently than it is presented by these coaches, functional medicine doctors, naturopathic doctors. And so they actually go into talking about how they do believe functional medicine is overtreating or they're inappropriately using the results from this test. And so it's important to explain to people that these are very sensitive tests in the lab um, because they utilize a method called quantitative PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction, which essentially is amplifying the DNA of anything that is in that sample. So this is why maybe a more traditional stool test may not show something that this test does show. But again, that doesn't mean that it's you know, causing symptoms. It doesn't mean that it's a problem. The human body is so diverse and so is our microbiome that there can be a ton of things that, you know, a functional medicine doctor or coach or whatever can say, oh, yep, that's the root of your problems right there. That shouldn't be there. But they don't know that because everybody's body and microbiome is so incredibly different. And just because there is a something showing positive in your stool sample from a PCR test doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it really is there in a quantity enough to cause an issue or it is the cause of the symptoms. Um, and I just really enjoyed, you know, hearing from the people who actually developed the test, you know, they don't present it in the same way that these providers are doing, you know, they're presenting it. They actually, you know, they actually address the nuance. And that's when I actually had more respect for the guys who developed this test, they recognize that if anything, the technology is just the most fun part of how sensitive the test is and what it can pick up. But they say like, you would, you shouldn't just be going over the results and making a clinical diagnosis and treating based on those results. You know, it's more of just, is there anything that is an extreme outlier? Let's take a look. And then, you know, does it match with symptoms? Not, oh God, this is showing, we better treat it now. You know, and so this is why a lot of like registered dietitians don't even utilize it because why you're going to treat based on symptoms anyway, right? So might as well just work with a professional that can help you address those symptoms. I think the technology is really fascinating for the, the stool analysis. And I think it could be helpful for some situations where it's like, you know, C. diff, 
but you know, for the general population, it's just not necessary whatsoever. And it's being utilized as a tool to, you know, make a lot of money and then over treat. Well, what you said about the treat and see approach and that, you know, we really should be paying attention to the big picture, which is our symptoms and like, how are we presenting? So I think if we are going to, let's just say a functional medicine doctor for some issues that we're having, like, are we having symptoms where we actually think there could be a GI cause? Because if not, then First of all, why are we even doing this test in the first place? Oh, maybe we're just doing it to just find out. But considering all that we've said about like the limitations of these stool samples and the cost, it's not like these tests are like $8 and you're like, oh, I'll just do it for funsies to like see what bacteria is in my stool. Like, you know, I think it also is very fascinating and interesting, but like at $400, $500 a pop, like that's just not something the average person is going to be doing for fun. I think a lot of these things like, you know, we want to be doing them out of necessity. We want to be doing them because we actually think that we're going to get something out of it versus like shooting in the dark and being like, let's do the GI map and like, let's do the Dutch test and like, let's do all these other ABC XYZ tests and like see what pops up when a lot of these are not evidence-based tests. A lot of these are super expensive. And that's why people can go to these doctors and spend three, four, five thousand dollars on getting all these tests done. For me, I think that's a really big flag is when you go to the non-conventional doctor and they want to do like all these different, very expensive, oftentimes non-evidence-based tests. For stool samples specifically, I think some practitioners think that these are diagnostic tools and that, you know, for example, if there's a microbe that is high in your stool sample then they think it like absolutely needs treating when maybe the bacteria is just passing through at a higher rate or maybe having a higher amount of that microbe is a normal part of your microbiome since we're all different. So if a practitioner is using a stool sample to help give them a hypothesis of what's going on with you, you know, it should be more of a bird's eye view that they should be taking into account all the tests you do, your symptoms, and not going down this rabbit hole of like, oh, you have a microbe that's overabundant on the test, which might not even play a role in your symptoms. And another thing about some of these tests is that they provide recommendations, you know, based on your stool sample for like probiotics and supplements. But often these are not even based on evidence. So my functional medicine doctor, he wanted to use the GI map in a different way than the naturopath did. So if I recall, there was like, the overabundance of four different bacterias under the opportunistic bacteria. So those were flagged by the test as high. And then there were two others under the normal bacteria flora that were flagged as high. And the GI doctor immediately put me on three antimicrobials, which were, of course, his brand and sold, of course, in his store. And I will say that they actually did help me a lot. But whether that's because I had you know, this quote unquote gut dysbiosis or something else, I don't know. I know that after I did the first round, the doctor who I was working with wanted to retest. He wanted to retest and redo the GI map. And I was like, are you kidding? Like that's 400. I'm not retesting. Like, no, I'm sorry. Um, and when I went to, when I changed, uh, like a couple weeks down the line to a natural path, and I asked her, like, do you want to retest? And she said, no, I just want to do it based on your symptoms, 
right? So she was just very clear, like, how did you feel before doing the antimicrobials? How are you feeling now? And then a couple weeks later, when my symptoms like relapsed, she said, okay, I think you might actually have SIBO, um, which is why I think the antimicrobials like helped. And now you've relapsed because SIBO can have a very high like relapse rate. So let's do another round of antimicrobials and let's see how you feel. And so we actually treated SIBO um, as a working diagnosis, as a treat and see diagnosis, because there also are problems with the SIBO breath tests. Um, and there's problems with reliability and like false negatives. Um, so we just really worked on like a treat and see approach. And I just really love that because what she was doing felt right. Okay, let's do two weeks and like, let's check in and let's see how you're doing. Okay, we think we're on the right track. Like, let's keep going. Yeah, so I think like working with a doctor and like having that intuition about yourself and not working with a doctor who's just like so obsessed with testing and the results that you can get from testing that they're no longer listening to you as the patient to how your symptoms are and how you're reacting to their treatments. I think that's, you know, one of the most effective ways to go about addressing your issues, right? It's like, as long as it's not, you know, harmful or like incredibly expensive, there's nothing wrong with just, you know, working with somebody who's helping you potentially address how you're feeling and then going based on that. You know, that's the same with diet. We're all going to have different diets that help us feel good. And that's why I'm like, work with an actual registered dietitian that can help guide you through that process, you know? And one more thing I wanted to hit on with that stool analysis is that, you know, we were talking about just because something is present in that moment doesn't mean that it's an actual, what we call resident in your microbiome. So say you have an acute gastroenteritis. If they were to test your stool at that moment, they're going to find God only knows what pathogens. But then you test it two weeks later, probably not because your body has cleared it, right? So it's like at any given moment, you can have any pathogen potentially show up in a lot, you know, in high quantities, but that doesn't mean it's an actual, what we call resident. doesn't mean that that's what's there all the time. It can also be based on something you ingested recently. Right. So it's like, I would think for an order that for those tests to be more accurate, you would have to routinely test, right? Like, okay, what are we looking at as a trend over three months? I can see that maybe being a little bit more like, elucidating to what's going on, but who can afford that? <laughs> I was right? just thinking that when you said the resident, the like, what if I tested like every stool sample every day for like yes. a month and I exactly. blew like, you know, half a million right. dollars. <laughs> exactly. And that's where it's like, okay, maybe if you're ultra wealthy and you can do that, all right, fine. It would be fascinating data. But at the same time, it's like, we can go about this in other ways, right? Like, we don't need to, and that we talk about this with the wellness space, it gets like, um, it can cause really disordered thinking and tracking where we just get obsessed with it and honed in on it. And I've learned if anything that can make me, and I'm not ever saying something is just in our head, but we can hyper fixate and it can be a problem because, you know, and I always used to just use an excuse like, well, I'm just really in tune with my body. You know, like, oh, I just know. And it's like, I've had to like readdress, you know, okay, am I having an actual response to something that I should pay attention to? Or do I just need to think a little bit more critically about how my previous day was? 
You know, did I just do more activity? Did I eat something bad? Okay, cool. It'll pass. You know, rather than just freak out immediately and say, oh, God, I got to go get this testing done. I need to find someone to work with, you know. So it's really, like we said, again, nuance and looking at the big picture um, and knowing that these aren't your only options. You know, there are other people out there that are more affordable. They can make this happen. And so um, and I, I do have individuals that I trust referring to. Most of those don't utilize any of these tests because they can they can figure out how to treat without them. You know, they can really tr- figure out how to improve your quality of life by understanding that it really does boil down to a lot of the basics. I think a really big problem with and within the wellness space is there's a lot of like there's a lot of like cookie cutter approach when it comes to health. And so even though they will give lip service to like saying, oh, like you're an individual and we should individualize things. The truth is for a lot of these doctors, when you go to them, it's like a standard protocol and a standard testing. So you go and they'll be like, okay, we're going to do the Dutch test. We're going to do the GI map. We're going to do the IgG food sensitivity tests, which these IgG food sensitivity tests are often like at home food sensitivity tests. And they're often done by health coaches or naturopaths. Uh, Basically, they're kits that supposedly tell you if you're sensitive to like 100 different foods. But unfortunately, these are not evidence-based. And actually, so many organizations have recommended, like allergists and stuff, have recommended against using the IgG tests to diagnose, quote-unquote, diagnose food allergies or intolerances because there, there is that lack of the evidence base, right? So you're going to these doctors, and they are oftentimes just, like, have their four, five, six tests. Maybe they'll do, like, your methylation. They'll do, like some detoxing thing. And then it's just this like cookie cutter standard as well for quote unquote, treating you, right? Like everyone gets like adrenal fatigue supplements, everyone gets like leaky gut treatment, everyone gets like quote unquote, hormone imbalance, quote unquote, leaky gut treatment, quote unquote, hormone imbalance treatment. And so I think that's really one of the big problems is that first of all, most of these are not evidence based. And like, second of all, this cookie cutter approach does not work. And that's why it's so important to try to really work with someone who can think about based on your symptoms, like what does it really sound like that you need? And I think there's times when a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor or a health coach may be able to say, hey, you know what? It sounds like you have problems with your thyroid. Or hey, you know what? It sounds like you have histamine intolerance. Or hey, you know what? It sounds like you have this other thing. It's amazing if they're able to like glean that insight And that's also a time when we can take the insight that they've given us and say, thank you, and then go with our conventional doctor, right? So like, hey, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it is my thyroid. Like no one ever picked up on that, frustratingly, right? But like, maybe that's what it is. And so maybe now I can go see an endocrinologist or a thyroid doctor on this issue. Um, So I think it's like having that critical thought to be able to, if working with a, a doctor or a coach, like see where where can they really be within their scope of practice and where can they really help us? And where are we just throwing our money away on things that are not really helping us and that are not evidence-based? And something else I want to say about the food sensitivity tests is that I think these are really big problems, especially within the endometriosis community of we can find so many quote-unquote trigger foods. And I know we have so many food intolerances like I genuinely have so many food intolerances, especially with the muscle activation syndrome. And it can be a really scary and 
anxious path to go down when we're working using a test like this that tells us that we're like intolerant to 10 different foods, but we haven't done any kind of elimination diet. We haven't actually done like a focused diet to see if these foods are affecting us. And if they are affecting us, do we actually need to cut them out or do we just need to eat less of them? Do we need to bring up the nutrient quality of the rest of our diet? So I think even something like a food sensitivity test, apart from it not being accurate by any means, and apart from being very expensive, can really lead down a path of orthorexia and disordered eating patterns and not actually be helping us. And the last thing I want to mention is I want to apologize for a couple of my previous episodes demonizing some foods. I definitely heard when I listened back to my podcast Uh, three or four years ago, demonizing seed oils and demonizing gluten. So I just really want to acknowledge that I am sorry about that. And we really should not be demonizing any foods. These are not foods that cause problems in all people. There's no reason to be calling foods toxic or vilifying them. And all, all foods can be part of a nutrient dense diet. And I definitely want to be recognizing my limitations, you know, and the knowledge that I have. And I want to be bringing on a registered dietitian to talk about some of these topics very soon. So stay tuned for that. So like you were saying, how it's this cookie cutter approach in the wellness space. It's funny you say that because we also are pretty harsh on the clinical guidelines for endometriosis. So we are definitely equal opportunity um, dissenters. So with the Clinical guidelines, you know, I tell people when you go to a doctor, they have these clinical guidelines and they follow them, right? Pretty much just they go down the list. And so with endometriosis, they have their guidelines and they follow their cookie cutter plan. Go in the wellness space, you go to an endometriosis coach, they're going to follow their cookie cutter plan. They're literally not much different. And so neither of them are truly very, you know, individualized. And so with their within those cookie cutter you know, plans in the wellness space, they have their test that they go through, like we had mentioned. So, you know, like we, the Dutch and the GI map one are the most common, but then man, you can get into all sorts of wacky tests that have zero credibility. And of course, you know, they'll, they'll try to pull up some, some research done somewhere and present it as being quality research, but that doesn't mean it is. And just so everyone knows, not all journals are even created equal. So definitely look to see where, information has been published because often you can just pay, you know, and have something published. You have to double check to make sure it's even been peer reviewed. So there's all sorts of, you know, detoxes um, and bizarre protocols that, you know, are out there. And so just you have to be a really savvy consumer. It's absolutely critical, especially with these detoxes. You can, they can be dangerous. Um, and the supplements can also be dangerous. And people aren't always told, you know, the repercussions or implications. I always, always, always highly suggest if you can, like say you're picking up a supplement at somewhere that has a pharmacist, I genuinely think it's important to say like, hey, you have a second to chat about this. They're very knowledgeable. You know, pharmacists are medical doctors. You know, they've been through the ringer. They are incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to these compounds and the biochemistry. And so I understand a lot of these supplement places you go in and they just have somebody working there and then they'll say, 
they'll regurgitate some information that they think is accurate. So that can be really harmful. So it's just really important that you're being careful because I know people who've come to me with bizarre symptoms. And the first thing I do with them is say, well, what, what supplements are you taking? Okay. But what also, which medications are you taking? You know, are you on birth control also trying to manage? Oh, and you're adding this supplement. Those are contradictory. You know, there's online resources as well, where you can do like drug interaction checkers. I think that's really important also. So before you start taking a supplement or a detox, oh, and also always look at the ingredients on these detoxes that if you're going to buy one or, you know, cause usually they come as like a, a plan or a program, not just, you know, a dietary regimen. Often when I look at them, it'll be just like some basic ingredient, like a lot of magnesium. And so it's paying a ton of money for it. I'm like, well, yeah, magnesium is going to make you sit on the toilet if you're using that much. So, you know, it's important again, you know, be savvy consumer, look at the ingredients, go over the nutritional facts on it with somebody that you trust. If you can, don't just go taking it for face value. Um, and just be so careful about these detoxes. They, they, they can be very harmful. I just want everyone to be careful. Um, I want everyone to be making educated decisions because informed consent doesn't just apply to medications given to you from doctors. Informed consent also applies to anybody in the wellness space. I think something to know about the supplement industry is that it's just not nearly as as regulated as prescription drugs are. And so like you were saying, they supplements can interfere with prescription medications, but Additionally, with supplements, there can be, depending on the company, a lack of quality control for purity, for strength, even for the ingredients listed on the back, there could be ingredients missing. Um, So this is just really something to keep in mind is that, you know, while a taking a key supplement that you're missing, like, for example, working with your doctor and getting a blood test and learning that you're anemic and that you need iron or getting a you know, blood test and learning that your vitamin D levels are low or your calcium is low. And like taking a targeted supplement can be really, really helpful when you know that you have a deficiency. This is a lot different than like going to a functional medicine doctor or going to a naturopath and them just like throwing all kinds of supplements at you. A lot of these doctors can either be profiting off supplements that they prescribe, even if that supplement is like from another brand, they could be making money off of that. Or some of these doctors have their own supplement lines, which is what happened with my functional medicine doctor. He had his own brand of supplements, which I thought, because I didn't know anything, I was like, this is really impressive. And now I'm like, that is a really big flag, (laughs) right? Because when you have your own supplement line and you're making a profit off of every supplement that you give your patient, who's to say what I really needed and did not need because it's not like it's not objective at that point. And my functional medicine doctor, he even made his own progesterone drops, um, which I did not realize at the time that like that is a huge red flag and that that's not even regulated hormones and that I really needed to be getting that like through prescription, through my conventional doctor. And by the way, once I got my prescription for my beloved. I know Kate said, ooh, progesterone, but for me, that was exactly what I needed. And once I got my beloved progesterone, $37 for three months of pills, and he was charging like a hundred bucks a bottle a month or something. I mean, so the difference in prices is ridiculous. And also the fact that now I'm actually taking 
FDA approved regulated hormones versus just like <laughs> some hormones that his shop cooked up somewhere, you know, so these are really, really big red flags. So I think just like in final closing points that everything that we talked about is a really, really big problem with the wellness industry and wellness culture is that it just tricks us into thinking that health is really expensive and really complicated right? So the wellness industry is like, well, you need all these fancy tests and fancy supplements and you need celery juice and organic food and superfoods. And you need a very expensive blender and pricey teas and detoxes and green powders and yoga retreats and like all these devices, right? Like your fitness device, your sleep tracker, like your heart rate variability, your glucose monitor, even though you're not even diabetic, you know, you need to go to the fancy grocery store and this is a huge problem because wellness culture has wrongly tricked us into thinking that health has to be very complicated, has to cost all this money, that it's just this like privileged, inaccessible, constant like striving. And therefore, like, you know, when you have to do, quote unquote, do all these things and like follow all these rules, of course, that's like First of all, you don't need to do that. But second of all, it's impossible. And so then it's so easy to creep in all the shame and the guilt and the I'm not doing a good enough job and like I need more fancy things or like more detoxes. And for a lot of us, what we really need to do is we need to trust our body. I think we need to put more emphasis on common health promoting behaviors. So these are things like getting enough sleep, getting enough daily movement, eating a balanced and nutrient-dense diet, having enough social support, finding sources of joy and meaning in our lives, figuring out how to reduce and manage our stress. We can find ways to make these individualized, sustainable habits for ourselves as a foundation of health, and then we can build from there. And so I think a lot of times we get told, hey, you need like this fancy green powder. And it's like, maybe I just need to eat more fruits and vegetables and I don't need to be spending, I don't know how much money on this like fancy like vegetable powder when I could potentially just eat more fruits and vegetables. So of course, every situation is different and all of our health is different. So this is not a cookie cutter approach either, but I just think a big problem with the wellness industry is that instead of focusing on these simple sounding but important health health promoting foundational habits it's just like very quick to sell us something that we don't need that is very very expensive that ultimately is not going to help our health but then we feel like it should be so then we start to feel like we're inadequate and we're failing and it's our fault that we're sick and it's not our faults that we're sick it's not our fault we have endometriosis it's not because we're not trying hard enough um, it's not because we're inherently broken or defective. And that's why like that person over there, quote unquote, healed their endometriosis and we didn't um, newsflash. They didn't heal their endometriosis. So I think these are just like really, really important things to keep in mind because we don't feel good every day and we can be struggling to survive and desperate to feel better. And I think Kate and I have both been in that situation for years and years, and it is a very, very hard place to be in. Um, and wellness culture is very predatory and it preys on that. With everything you just said there, um, I really do. I mean, I agree. It's often predatory and it makes us feel like we've done something wrong, but that's not the case. And that's really my biggest 
the point I try to get across to everybody, right? Um, at the end of the day, it's not your fault. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. And a lot of the people in the wellness space will be like, well, they'll find it. They'll try to come up with a way to present it as you did it wrong, right? You didn't try hard enough. You didn't do the detox the right way rather than just admit defeat. Oh, well, it didn't work for you. You know, it's not that big of a deal. We're all human. The body is extraordinarily complicated. Um, I often have to remind myself that the human body, as we age, things just don't work as well as they used to sometimes. Um, again, that's not my fault. It's not because I did something wrong. But I do believe that we can improve our quality of life despite endometriosis. And I think that it's really important, like you said, to just look at those foundational approaches to overall health, right? It's not sexy. It's not easy to sensationalize. So people don't talk about it. But at the end of the day, you know, there are tried and true, well-studied, basic health and lifestyle modifications that we know help with overall health. And I think that should be the goal that we focus on. 